Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is New Books in Psychology, and I'm your host, Eugenio Duarte, in New York. Today on the show, we have Polly Buckingham, author of the book of short stories, The Expense of a View, published by University of North Texas Press in 2016, which is the winner of the Catherine Ann Porter Prize in Short Fiction. Polly Buckingham teaches at Eastern Washington University and is director of its Willow Springs Books. She's also founding editor at Springtown Press, and her previous book is entitled A Year of Silence. Welcome to the show, Polly. Thank you. Polly, before getting into your book, The Expense of a View, can you tell us a bit about yourself and how you got into short story writing? Yeah, so I've been writing stories since I was a child. Um, And I write poetry as well, and I write longer fiction, but stories have always been my first love. Um, yeah, I, I studied, uh, certainly studied fiction in college, and then I took 10 years off between college and graduate school and um, started writing poetry more heavily in college and then even more in graduate school. And so I do, I definitely do both now. And I teach at Eastern Washington University, and I've been there for about 15 years. What initially spoke to you about short stories? I think I was the youngest of seven, and I chattered a lot, and I just started telling stories from day one. And I I sort of have a reputation in my family um, as as not shutting up. I'll put it that way. Just being the kid that sat in the backseat and, you know, told ridiculous stories that went on and on and on and on and on. So I think I just have always been doing it. And I, I, I suspect it was one of those, uh, it was a mechanism for me to understand the world. Now, one of the reasons it's great to have you on the show is because the book that we're talking about today, The Expensive of You, has such a psychological bent to it. So I'm wondering how you became interested in psychology and mental health. Yeah, I'm really glad um, that this interview is happening for that reason. So I have three collections of stories, and this is the earliest collection. And thankfully, it was the first one published. And I've always looked at the collections um, that that this one was the psychological one, the second is the political one, and the third one is the spiritual one. And I use those terms extremely loosely um, because I don't think – if you're not if you're not looking for it, that might not be the first word that comes to mind in, in any of the cases. But um, my I, I haven't formally studied psychology at all. Um, my interest in it is just when I wrote these stories, I was dealing with a lot of these issues around me. Um, so I, I'm certainly not any of these characters, and nobody I know is any of these characters. But there's a lot of um, psychological illness in my family, and then the, and then following those illnesses, there were a lot of deaths, and so I was I was grappling with those things. Um, and at the time, 
when I wrote most of these, nobody had died yet, and I didn't know they would. Um, so, so I was really dealing with the psychological part. And I was trying to figure them out. Uh, yeah. So I think that's probably my, my best explanation of it. I've always been pretty psychologically driven. Um, even, even the artists I've been interested in, the visual artists have been more psychological. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, so like Van Gogh, somebody like that. A, a lot of times when people who are prone to writing experience mental health issues in their own life or, or see loved ones suffer with some kind of uh, mental illness or psychological issue, people can be drawn towards writing, writing memoirs or writing in a more autobiographical way, but you are channeling those experiences into short stories and fiction. And so I'm wondering what makes that um, a suitable genre for you? How, does, how is it that short story writing works for you? Well, I mean, the first thing is it, it simply has always been the most natural form for me. Um, but I, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm better at it and I always have been. And I, I like masks. I don't want to tell anybody my story. I mean, that, that's not what I'm after. I'm after a healing experience. And, and that does not have to be about me. In fact, I think it's probably a little bit better to pass it off on some other character and um and and let them deal with it um also there's kind of a practical edge to this uh and it's one i i really didn't face up to until i was quite a bit older really in my 40s um though i had heard other writers talk about this sharon olds in particular um i think that you know the privacy of my family for example is is really important and i have written things where i've had uh, siblings say to me I, I, that it makes me really nervous that you've even written that and i've gotten i've not submitted them i've not done anything with those pieces and i think i think i really value those relationships and i don't i, I don't i don't want to tell other people's stories i'm not about that it feels to me a little like a bad television show um and i love fiction i love reading it it's 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 really central to my core. Um, yeah. So why don't we get into the book and talk about some of these characters and some of these stories? And if it's okay with you, maybe we can start with the story entitled Compliance, which I have to tell you is, is one of the stories that left me the most puzzled because it's not easy to know what's what's going on in this story. Can can you tell us a little bit about what, what's happening and um, – how you came up with this story. Yeah. So um, in the story, there's a character, Lucille, who has just moved from a rural area um, to a big city. So she's moved from rural Oregon to Seattle in this case. And she, in, in the narrative present, she is working in a bank as a, in, for a temporary agency called Talent Tree. And her cousin, um, who is not named in this has helped her um, get out of what was an abusive relationship um, when she was living rurally. I mean, she wasn't just living rurally. She was living in a cabin in the woods with no electricity and, or sorry, with no running water. And uh, in the story, she is doing this very repetitive task. She's got these stickers um, that go onto uh, file folders 
and they're creating binders. She's working for a bank and they're creating binders for a convention in which people will get together and talk about an enormous merger project. Um, in fact, uh, the, the core of the story came from those stickers. So I, I had this job and then I created the life of the characters around the job. And it was during um, the time that Washington Mutual was eating up other banks. Uh, and so Washington Mutual was merging with these other banks. And I was sitting in a room by myself, occasionally with other people, sticking these tabs on these, these folders. And um, I took the tabs home with me. I took one set home with me because I found them. I found the titles of them so fascinating, and I put them on the edge of my computer. Um, I was in a writing group at the time, and I used them as a prompt for a story, and that's how the story emerged. Um, <clears throat> so the trickiest part of the story is that Lucille, the main character, is is incapable of remembering the events of her life, and so she... To some extent, she fictionalizes them, and that that is what makes the story so difficult to read and so difficult to figure out because she's also – she's kind of PTSD. The, the stories come to her in flashes. Um, she's seeing a counselor. She's really disaffected. Um, the, the gist of, of the story is that, the, is that the, the boyfriend has been quite violent and has um, um, murdered her dog, and she, she's not aware of it until the end of the story. She, she comes in and out of being aware of that fact. Well, one of the things that I found, so I don't know if that clears up for you. Well, it, it does. It does. Mm -hmm. But I think maybe you should tell our listeners a little bit about your style of writing, because what I recall from the story is that you really give the reader um, a microscopic view into the inner experience of this character as she is, forming her little piles and figuring out the most efficient way to carry out this task of putting the stickers on the tabs. In a way, it's kind of relatable. You know, we've all done that at some point in our lives, you know, done a very mundane task and figured out how to do it. What are you, are you trying to evoke something? Are you trying to evoke a certain feeling or convey something to the reader through taking us into the, into the character's experience in this way? Yeah, um, she's really shell-shocked, and this is a comforting task for her. Um, it is something that she can control. Uh, she's not bored by it. Um, she's overwhelmed by the rest of the world. She's completely overwhelmed by Seattle. Uh, there's just too many people. There's too many faces. There's too much too much busyness, and so this is, this is comforting for her. Uh, at the same time, she's alone in a, in a room. And so all of the things that she's trying not to think about are coming up. So there's a, there's a contrast between what she's doing, this sort of clean, well-lit room and these tab stickers that go on these pa papers in exacting order and the mess that her life um, had been and really still is. And she's trying to she's, – she's, she's sorting that out. And one of the things that's I think really disorienting and it's, and it's quite intentional is that the memories come up mid-paragraph. They interrupt her. And, and that's, that's something that also comes through. The, the reader sort of experiences that interruption as well. So, so the reader kind of has a, 
um, an experiential understanding of what this character is going through. Do you relate to this character in some way? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, you know, I think that I'm a fairly um, I'm, I'm a fairly slow moving person, and I do remember I lived in Seattle, and I remember moving there, and I remember being really overwhelmed. Um, I also have intense focus, and so tasks like this um, in prior jobs that I've had have been quite comforting for me. So I knew all of that, and I've certainly seen plenty of violence in my life, so I know, you know, the the reaction to that. Um, and so, yes, I, I remember I had a job as a as a maid once, and I had to fold towels. And I just loved it. I was in college at the time, and I found it really comforting. And I I got irritated when other people didn't fold the co- towels as well as I did um, because they were messy. And this seemed to be the one thing that I had some control over. So, and I, I don't think that's an unusual experience. Um, you know, people want to know that there's something that's clean and well put together that they can return to. So, so I was wondering if we could move to a different story um, that jumped out at me. I'm thinking of the one entitled Night Train. To me, there are really two stories going on here, and, and they're kind of cross-generational. I, I don't know how you would call it if you think of it in terms of flash-forward or flashback. But I'm wondering if you could tell us about this story and also what's – or the two stories. And what's the larger story that you're trying to tell? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm glad you chose this because I, I just read this last night, so it's very fresh in my in my head. So I think the one thing that this has in common with the other story, and a lot of these stories have in common, and you asked about earlier, is the narrative present is really just a, a couple, in this case, like an hour of time, um, and 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 the memory is what makes up the story. And so in this case, there's a man who's just his son has just died. And he's trying to catch a fish. And he's um, sitting in his office um, watching for this fish that would be on his in the water by his dock. And he's, he's installed an underwater light so he can see the fish. Um, it, it's kind of a strange thing that he has done in reaction to his son's death. Um, and he's thinking about the son's death. It's absolutely intergenerational. Um, for me, this story is about the way in which parents and children um, take up opposite poses from one another. Um, So his father is a musician, and his father left him when he was a child. He is – he's a scientist. He's an engineer. He's a a left-minded guy. His son and his father are both right-minded. They're both uh, right-brained – excuse me – they're both creative, they're both imaginative, and so he's really, throughout the story, really hard on himself, um, really hard on the way that he is. He grew up thinking that his father left him because he was not like his father, he couldn't play music, and then he gets this child who's, the, who's, who's just like his father, and um, he regrets anything he's ever said to his child that might have been derogatory, um, especially the the day of his his son's death. Um, and I think the ending of the story turns out to be a lot more uplifting than I had envisioned when I set out to write it. And that is he, he becomes very aware that um, he's different and 
that's really okay. Uh, who he is, 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 is not a bad thing. And so he really embraces himself and, you know, as, as subtle as that may seem in the story itself, I, I very much think of it as a, as a positive um, ending. You know, one of the, one of the most tragic parts of that story is that the way that the son dies is really in what sounds like a freak accident. And I'm wondering if there's a, there's a lesson here or something that you're trying to convey about life through, through that plot point. Yeah. I, I mean, I wouldn't say I was thinking of this consciously when I wrote it, but, um, you know, we only have our actions and, and what he says to this boy when he leaves the house, um, he accuses him of, of smoking dope in the house. And it turns out that the son is grieving over the death of a musician he he had great respect for. And, um, yeah, you know, if, if, you, if you get angry with somebody, um, you, you don't really know that you're going to have the time to say to, to take that back. And so I suppose that is inherent in the in the plot line. So, so this father is feeling some deep regret. Yeah. Where, where did this story? How how did this story? How do any of your stories come to you? Yeah, this one um, it, it's actually not dissimilar from the other one, except that this story was in my head for about ten years before I actually wrote it. It's a very old story. I was in. I was just out of college. I was living in Florida, and I was driving down the highway, and I saw this streetlight, really big streetlight, really high up, and it was dangling. And I thought, what if that hit someone? And um, and then uh, I think the next concept for it was the structure itself. What if it hit this this child? This child is well. He's in college. And um, what if, and I, and I thought about the father and the, the fish, and then I discovered the story from that. But it was 10 years. I, I had some notes on it. I had a couple pages. I thought that the idea was too crazy to actually write down. I often think that about early, when these ideas come to me, I think, oh, that's ridiculous. I can't pull that off. And this one I really couldn't pull off. It took me 10 years to actually um, write the whole thing out, and then even then, then the drafts were were pretty messy. Um, so, but but you stuck with it in over the course of those ten years. You didn't. It sounds like you mentally didn't discard it. That's right, and I <clears throat> I think that's super important with writing for me is um, if you have an impulse for something, even if it's even if it's really bizarre, if it sticks with you, you really have to you really have to pay attention to that. And I talk a lot with students about um, experimental fiction, and I think the thing that makes some experimental fiction work and some exper- experimental not fiction not work is the stuff that does work. You feel like there's a, a necessity and an impulse to tell the story regardless of its form or its content. <clears throat> so I can think of, I'm a, I'm a real fan of John Cheever, um, especially late in his life when he gets truly bizarre. And these are just stories he, he seems to absolutely have to tell. He is not doing it to be different or to be experimental. And that is not the impulse. The impulse is, I have to tell this, and, and I'm sorry if it's strange. 
Um, and you and you feel that. And I and I think that that's definitely the case with some of these. So a lot of these sat for a long time without publication. Um, I was surprised when stories did get picked up that the first ones that got picked up were the ones that I considered the most out there, like um, compliance and my doppelganger's arms. Um, let's let's talk about that one. My doppelganger's arms. Um, <laughs> tell us about this one. Tell about tell us about the. Well, the the women or the woman in the story? I'm 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 not sure which one it is. Right, it's a good question. Um, so this was one of the hardest stories I have ever written in. It was hard to get right, and the genesis of the story was a dream I had, um, which already is problematic. Um, I wo- uh, in the dream, I woke up with holes in my arms and I discovered that I had been shooting heroin in my sleep. And um, what I did in the story was, as I started writing it, I started to recognize that this character who has this experience um, may well be dissociative, uh, have dissociative do- disorder, as in, you know, what we traditionally called... Um, uh, multiple personalities. And I, I didn't, in the early drafts, I didn't want to specify that. Um, in the later drafts, I come closer um, to that being the, the the most likely interpretation. But I still, I still want to leave it to some extent up to the reader because <clears throat> it is the story. The primary story is this woman who's moved across the country um, and is lonely and um, makes friends with somebody um, who is potentially not okay. And she automatically trusts this woman, um, even though the woman has given her every reason um, to everything that the woman has said and done suggests that she's 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 not quite right. Um, and I think that experience in and of itself is a valid experience. Um, but you you can there are hints that the narrator has been through some traumatic things that um, she herself is is struggling. And they're very similar, the two characters. Yes. Yeah. And that that's you know intentional because I frankly I see them as the same character. Um, the, the narrator seems much more sort of put together, uh, but at the same time seem, seems to be able to relate so well to this other woman who, as you're saying, has all these signs of, of trouble, of some, something not quite being okay. Right, right. And this is a character who I think this type of woman shows up in the story. There's three or four stories um, about these kind of, and it, it was interesting because somebody in one of the reviews wrote about this, about these women who are who are moving quite a bit and you know leaving constantly leaving things, and they're they're escaping troubled, you know troubled past pasts, and um, you kind of get the feeling they're never quite going to find their path. Um, so this character, the character in compliance, also they're in that space of of getting up and going, and and I think they're also in in really deep denial, um, and that's what makes this story I think so troubling. It, it it is 
it is quite a troubling story. I was wondering where where you drew from your own life or from your own thoughts and ideas to to write this story. Right. Um, <clears throat> I, I did move across the country. Um, I am not as restless as these characters, but I, you know, and, and when I moved, I, I started to look back at, um, my own family. Um, and as I said, my, I have a, I have a family full of people with psychiatric illnesses. And, and in, when I wrote these, and I was in my 20s when I wrote a lot of these stories, at least the drafts of them, um, I, was, I was working through those troubles. And so invariably those troubles make it, make it into the stories in some ways. And, you know, this is just one of those things that I was dealing with. There's a lot of dissociation in general, PTSD, those types of things. Um, and, and we don't have... You know, I don't ever mention formal diagnoses, and that's really intentional. But, but I, I do want the characters, um, I, like this character, for example, Ra, uh, Mar, the the second woman, um, does say she's been to counseling, and Lucille in the first in compliance does say she's been to counseling. So, I mean, I was working through these things, and I was thinking about them very consciously in terms of um, diagnoses. Though again, I, I, that isn't the reader. I, that isn't the experience I want the reader to have because my understanding of that type of intense look at um, abuse issues, psychiatric issues, um, when you're issues of grief, when you're in those, the world is a little surreal. It's a it's a it's a little unbelievable, and you can't quite figure out what's real and what's not. And so those two things in this book, I think, blend together a lot. Some things that seem like they're not real are. Um, and, and that's very much the case in this story. So, so what are you trying to give the reader through the experience of reading a story like this one? I think, um, I think that we leave pieces of ourselves behind and everybody does that to some extent and I think that's what's happening here um, and also I don't think a lot of people really do understand the inner workings of um, that, that intense moment of stress that is um, derived from from grief, tragedy, abuse, death, um, and and I do think that that's one of the things I'm trying to capture here. You know, there's no doubt that these characters are are trying to heal, but I'm not sure they're all going to make it. Mm. And this character in particular is is one of the most troubling. Yeah. What does it do for you personally and and emotionally? Not just to write the story in and put it into written form, but then to see it published and to see it out there, to see that people are, are reading it and experiencing it, does, does, that, does that give you something? Uh, certainly to write it does. I mean, the act of creation is, um, it, it's a stunningly beautiful act. And, and if I could do nothing else, I would, I would love to just do that all the time. Um, like when I, when I had this dream, I was in a fog the next day and I, I wrote this, the draft of this thing immediately because I just, 
I had to, mm, I had to get it down. Um, and that, and that felt good. And I think that that is the way we work things out. I mean, a lot of these images come from a lot of dream images during that time in my life. And, you know, when you look at those things and then you hand them off to somebody else and leave them behind, um, you move forward. There's just kind of no, no, no way around that. And, and art for me has always been the way that, that does that. I mean, I find art pleasurable because of the way in which there's a complex of emotion that's being worked through and um, brought to the surface and then resolved. And I, I would say two things about the, the collection in general that, that reiterate this is the title and also, um, and that is the expense of a view. When you look at something, um, it's really, really difficult and something that's, that's ugly, um, that's difficult to look at. Um, but you really need to do that. You, you can't, you can't move on. I mean, all of the behaviorist therapy is not, it, it's going to help you survive, but it's not going to help you if you're not looking at what the problem is. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's, all of these stories are about that. And some characters just refuse. And so there's a lot of denial. There's a lot of really people not seeing things for what they are. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, for <clears throat> me, that, that, that was essential. Um, I, I, in, in my family, I was somebody who um, was a little outside of the things that went on. Um, and so I did feel a little like, you know, I, I felt like I had a better chance. And one of the reasons that, um, that I did as well is because of my writing. It, mm. it really allowed me to um, not follow in, in the footsteps of my, of my siblings. One of the images that has stuck with me the most in this piece, in this book, is the is the image of the woman dropping the the bags into the water. She she has an empty suitcase. It's in the title story, and she takes it to the river and she empties it again, even though there's nothing in it. And she does this compulsively, and I think that image really embodies what I'm after here. And that was a dream image for me, I, which I want to ask you about because I got to tell you, you're really singing my tune in talking about your dreams because I, as a, as a trained psychoanalyst and clinical psychologist, I'm very interested in dreams and work with them in, in my practice with my patients. But, you know, not everybody's curious about their dreams. Some people don't think they're very important. But you seem to not be one of those people. So what is your relationship to your dream life? What do your dreams mean to you? Yeah, it's super important, and, and it always really has been. Um, one of the books that really rocked my world in the last um, five years was uh, James Hillman, The Dream in the Underworld. And I think because it allowed the dreams to, to be more than um, – my, my psychological interpretation of dreams had always been everybody in the dream is a part of yourself. Um, and Hillman connects it with mythology and art much more than that. And what he says, and this is very true of art and it's very true of my dreams and it's very true of my poetry and it's very true, true of, of fiction. And that is you can't take the dream and interpret it. Um, you can, but you lose something in the interpretation. In other words, the dream is the only way to express what needs to be expressed. And it is not so much that the waking world uh, is interpreted in the dream. It's more like the dream is the vision 
of what's possible um, entered into the waking world, which I love because it means that the dream world is actually a step ahead of the waking world. Mm. And so, and so, and my approach to dreams had always been to take my cue from them, which is a strange thing. But when you have one of those emblematic dreams where, you know, you wake up and you go, wow, what, what was that? Um, and you think about it all day, it does change your world a little bit. It does change the way that you act. It does change the way that you see things and the way that you think things. So I have seen things first in my dream and um, reacted to them in my waking life. But, but what, do you, think is so cool. what do you say to people, though, who don't understand what to make of the weird images in their dreams, the, the, the strangers or the acquaintances that visit them in their dreams who they in their waking life never think about the the the, the oddity of dreams um well i i mean i don't uh, i i would never say to somebody you know you need to have the same relationship to dreams that i have or um because a lot of people um you know they they don't even remember their dreams um but it, the DreamWorks is a really nice metaphor for the way in which the mind um, works out what's going on, even though you know, I think the dream is doing a lot more than that. Um, and also, I think what, when we have notions and ideas that seem misplaced, and we don't know, really know where they come from, um, the creative impulse, for example, we should listen to those. And that happens in, in daily life. You know, you have sort of stray thoughts that don't seem to match up with the empirical world. And so you kind of shove them down. And I think that the the impulse of the artist is not to shove those down at all. It's to um, dive into them because um, think about uh, the notion of hesitation, the no- notion of mystery, the notion of the unknown um, all of those things, the notion, the, the idea that it is better if we do not know for brief periods of time than if we think we know everything. Um, if we hesitate in those things that we don't know, we're probably going to be able to move forward a little better. And the dream is, a, is like that. It's a moment of hesitation, a moment of saying, okay, I don't know. I don't understand this situation. And it's okay that I don't know. I don't need to be afraid of that. Um, I can, I can look at it and stay here until I get a notion that helps me move forward. In other words, believe in your intuition, listen to yourself. I think all of those things are relevant when it comes to thinking about the, the mysteriousness and strangeness of dreams. And I think that, I think that that appreciation for honoring the unknown comes through in your stories because in some of the stories, not only are you not sure what's going on, you're not, by the end of the story, you're not exactly sure what happened. And for people who are used to or really like having things proceed in a linear way and have definite endings, that, that might be a bit difficult, but it really puts the reader in an interesting place where he or she's left to sort of sit with what, what just happened and what is this, what is this bringing up in me and, and what is this meaning to me? Um, is, is this resonating at all with how you intended the stories to be received or maybe even how other people, some of your readers, have been receiving them? 
Yeah, absolutely. And and the other place that it's resonating is my is is my work. I mean, when when we talk about fiction, when I talk about fiction in classes, um, and and poetry, we look for those places that you can't you can't know exactly what's going on, and those places that open up to something more mysterious. I, I do want to jar the reader um, into those spaces. And it is unsettling. And the stuff that I love to read and the stuff that I think really, you know, stands stands alone in fiction, in literature, is stuff that does that. I mean, our best, our favorite, I think a lot of people's favorite work in literature does that. It pushes you into an uncomfortable space. Um, you don't necessarily end up there, but but you kind of need to go there. Mm. Is there a story in this book that, that you relate to the most? Um, yeah, but you mean in terms of my, like, this has the most of me in it? Or, or that maybe is the most meaningful to you? Um, hmm. Well, it, it, I think, um, right now, and I have to say right now, because as I mentioned earlier, I wrote these stories in my twenties and I'm 49 right now. Um, and so a lot of the spaces of these stories are not spaces that I occupy anymore. Um, in fact, when, when the book came out and every time I, I, I have to prepare for a reading, I, I go through this kind of emotional duress over each of the pieces and I have to read them aloud a couple times so that I can present the stories, um, without, you know, without weeping or respond, you know, reacting. But the most recent story is Honey. And I think right now, um, because this is about a middle-aged woman, I, it resonates the most with me. Um, plus, I found a dead dog in my shed. And so um, the, the, the basic storyline is one that I, I, you know, it was an experience of mine. Um, the rest of it, obviously... Not so much. Um, so right now, yeah, that that is the story that I'm I'm probably closest to. But otherwise, it's hard to tell. I mean, the the, the character in Void, of course, is probably the character that, who's most similar to me because she's standing outside the experience of madness and looking in, and that is really um, how I have experienced it. It, just so our readers know, Honey is actually the the opening story of the book, and I, I wonder if you could tell us briefly what what happens in the story. And I'm also curious to know, you know, what it means for you to be revisiting it now when you're actually closer in age to the character than you were when you wrote it. Yeah. Um, so this is a very very short story. Uh, it's under a thousand words. I wrote it as as a well, a, a magazine emailed me and said it's a it was an art gallery um, for jewelry for fine jewelry in Seattle, and they emailed and said you know they commissioned me to write a story based on a piece of jewelry, and they sent me a photo of this piece of jewelry, and in it there are these sort of it's oh, there's a lot of metal and then there's some honeycomb like um, shapes. And it looks very road warrior esque. It's very, um, it's very dark. It's, it's a beautiful piece. 
and it's charcoal and, and honey colored. And so I took the imagery from that that necklace and wrote this story um, called Honey. In it, a woman um, has just has just moved. Um, and it's a theme. She, yes, apparently it's still a theme. And she um, she's just she's she's living somewhat rurally. She's found a dead dog in her shed. It turns out it's the neighbor's dog. And the neighbor, um, when she calls them or tries to call them to get them, um, the neighbor sends the the, the 17-year-old son over to pick up the dog, which she finds a little gruesome because it's it's kind of a horrible task. And the kid obviously doesn't really want to do this, doesn't know what to do. Um, the, uh, The interactions are really awkward. She helps him get the dog into the truck and they drive away. And um, she's she's nursing um, an oncoming illness, uh, some sort of cold or flu, and she ends up um, sitting on her porch eating a jar of honey at the end of the experience. And it is revealed that um, that she has left behind um, an affair she never has with somebody um, who who is likely married. And so that it, it's a very it's a very compact story, and it's really all about this dog and this interaction with this boy. This, if I if I remember correctly, the story ends with the line, "quote Something is coming, but she does not know what." Are, are right. you are you signaling something to the reader? Yeah, that was a really hard line to keep in there because when I wrote this story, because it's a puzzling it's a puzzling line. But when I wrote this story, it seemed to me an enigma, like how did all these things fit together? And yet, to me, they, they, they absolutely did fit, fit together. And, and, and I felt like the, the scene was the, uh, with the dog was a harbinger of things to come. And so even the image of the boy on a black motorcycle with a black mohawk um, on his helmet um, that's the final image, and then there's this line: "Is a harbinger of things to come," as is this this horrible, you know, thing that happens. Um, and I and that is that is, I suppose, we try to make sense of the of the truly strange things that happen in our lives. And I think one of the things that we grasp onto is, what does this mean? You know, what. What could this possibly mean that this dog showed up in my shed? Mm. And and I think one of the answers is, well, there must be something coming. It's a it's it's a it's a moment of magical thinking. Um, so so tell us who who is this book meant for? Um, who are your readers and or who do you think might enjoy this book or connect with it the most? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that um, because I have struggled with readership and the concept of it all my life. I, I spent 10 years teaching composition and in composition, you, know, you always have an audience and you always think about, you know, who's your audience and what are you trying to convince them of and why and what can they do about it? And that's all very all the very practical concerns about writing. Um uh, fiction and poetry are, are not that at all. You're supposed to, you know, not think about the audience when you're writing it. Um, and and so that was always a conflict for me because I never thought about the audience when I wrote. I mean, I was writing when I was a child. 
Um, and the, my resolution to it came after some, a panel discussion I heard um, where some some poet said, oh, I have an ideal audience. And at the time, you know, I think of the ideal reader. And at the time, I thought this was ridiculous. Um, I was teaching composition. I was irritated. I thought, well, you, you can afford to have an ideal audience. I can't. And, and I, I, it just, it rankled me. And then I went up and saw a colleague of mine who really likes my work and who I have great, enormous respect for. And I walked into her audience and I said, oh, you are my ideal audience. And I realized at that point that, you know, the readership for a book doesn't much matter as long as there is a readership. And you're, you're communicating and communicating clearly. And if there are people who, who, groove with that, um, that's your readership. And, and if, if that's six people or a hundred people, all of that is fine. It doesn't change the clarity of the writing or it doesn't change, you know, how, how true you are to communicating that experience. It is about communicating the experience, but, um, you know, that experience isn't going to be right for all people. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm used to being a little on the edge of things, to begin with, I recognize that my readers are going to, um, you know, they're going to respond to that and they're going to be people who would respond to that. And that's how I feel about the things that I love. I, I, you know, some of the things that I read are, are stranger things than other people read. I'm the audience for those, mm -hmm. those things. And, and I'm really happy with that. Dude. So yeah, I'm not going to convince anybody of anything with this. You know, it's not my intent. Do you go out there and meet your readers? Do you go on tour? Yeah, that's what I'm doing right now. I'm in Florida. Um, and it's been really exciting. I love I love reading. Um, I love talking about the stories. Um, I've found that the reception has been super positive. And what I'm really interested in is when either I get a review or I talk to somebody and they tell me what story they responded to and why. And they see the stories in really different ways than I had imagined. Um, last night, somebody said, oh, I really thought I read Night Train and that was some a listener said at the end, I really thought that he was going to kill himself. And I, I all the imagery led there and he sort of went through all the imagery that could have potentially led to that. And I thought and I said, oh, I, I, I never, never, ever saw that. And it was it was really cool. It did something new to the story for me. So um, I, I really like that part. And. People, you know, people are reading it, and I'm I'm really happy about that. And people I don't know are reading it. And like I said, if there's only six of them, that's that's fine. I don't, you know, I don't need a whole lot more than that. Well, Polly, it's been such a treat having you on the show and talking about psychology and writing and dreams, and and your book, um, which again is called The Expensive of You. Before we go, can you tell us what you're working on these days? Yeah, I've just finished um, the draft of a novel um, about Death Valley. Um, I spent a lot of time hiking there, but I've gone twice a year for the last six years. And it is about a, a woman hermit um, living in a ghost town. And it's been really, really fun to write. I've done a lot of research for it. It's the first time I've really researched for anything. So I've done a lot of historical research and a lot of research about plant and animal life. And um, it's a, it's a project that was a little beyond me when I started it. And um, I'm, I'm struggling in all the right ways and all the best ways to get it done. And so I'm really close, but yeah. That sounds exciting. Will you let us know when the book is out? 
Absolutely. Great. Well, again, thank you, Polly, for being on the show. Such a treat. And uh, good luck with the book tour. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, take care. That was my interview with Polly Buckingham, author of the new book of short stories, The Expense of a View. This is Eugenio Duarte for New Books in Psychology. Don't forget to tell me what you think by going to my website, eugenioduartephd.com, and clicking on the blog and podcast tab to find this episode. I love hearing your feedback. Have a great week.